out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Hello and welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, So in this podcast, I am working my way through all of the works by H.P. Lovecraft, including many of his letters, um, including uh, some other nonfiction writing. And we have just finished up a series looking at some of his stories from the late 1920s, early 1930s. And now it's time to shift back to to his letters. Um, So for our our source here for the next 10 episodes or so is going to be the fourth volume of the selected letters. Uh, as you may know, uh, the s- letters were published in five volumes, um, and they're one of the major sources we have for, for Lovecraft's letters. Since then, there's been a lot of other publications of, of his letters uh, that have come out, especially collections of his letters with certain people. Um, but uh, I'm not going to look at all of those. These do, uh, you know, this, this series has its issues uh, in that it's very selective. Many of the letters are heavily edited or we just get fragments of letters um, based on what the editor thought was important. Uh, obviously, if we're going to be much more scholarly, we're going to want to look at the full letters. And we will do that with the case of the Robert E. Howard letters towards the end of the series. But, you know, I'm not going to look at every single uh, Lovecraft's letters. That's That would be uh, a little too much. Um, but we are going to um, take a serious look at what's in the selected letters. So the way I did this with the third volume, uh, I sort of liked, and that was uh, instead of going letter by letter chronologically, I broke it up into by correspondent. Um, and I've been doing this as I take my notes on the fourth volume of the selected letters, and I've noticed he, uh, the editors anyways, it's hard to know what without a complete listing of his letters, you know, who he was writing to most, you know, editors will, the editors chose things for various reasons. But um, for instance, uh, we got a lot of correspondence to talk about. In this case, uh, I'm going to look at 20 letters. I'll do that for every episode up until the end. Um, I got 10 correspondence for, for 20 letters. Um, the largest set are those to Clark Ashton Smith with five. So the original reason for doing this was we could kind of maybe follow a correspondence, you know, the back and forth and see how certain themes get followed through letter after letter. Um, you know, that might be harder to see because a number of these people you only wrote the one letter to. But still, I'm still going to break it up, though, because I think that's a slightly easier way to handle it. It's because um, certainly he does focus on certain themes with certain writers. Um, so we're going to do that. And yeah, as I as I just said, we're going to do them 20 letters at a time. That's a good group. I'm not going to go into massive detail of, of any letters. Uh, I'm going to just tell you what's in them. This kind of would be a guide um, and we're going to, you know, take notes in a way. So when we read the stories after, after these 10 episodes, we're going to flip back to the stories and look at his last set of stories uh, and the last set of revisions. And so we'll have these letters as sort of a, a background into what he's thinking at the time. And, and I'm really excited to look talk about the fourth volume of the selected letters because it's a really interesting time in history. Uh, we're covering basically 1932 to 1934 until the middle of 1934 or so. And of course, this is a very transitional period in American history. Uh, we're in the depths of the Great Depression. 
Uh, we have the election of Roosevelt, the growing tensions uh, with Japan and Germany, the rise of fascism and militarism around the world, uh, the rise of the New Deal. So these are all very, very interesting themes that uh, Lovecraft ends up commenting on. So it, it kind of tests and helps us explore some of his themes about history and politics. Um, you know, but as always, he's gonna, he talks a lot about literature, a lot about his philosophy, um, his own writing history. You know, I, it seems the editors focused on those sorts of themes, like what he says about writing, what he says about his career, uh, what he says about sort of politics, uh, some of his views of history and philosophy. Um, and we'll get a lot of that too. So also some personal tidbits are always included in these as well, which is nice if you're interested in the life of H.P. Lovecraft. So uh, with that introduction out of the way, let's jump into it. This will be the first of 10 episodes that are going to go through these, this uh, set of letters. Um, one thing I've noticed so far is like we don't have any really super long letters in this first set. There are some in the fourth volume of the selected letters, but I found some of the letters in especially the second and third volumes were really, really long. I mean, some of them went on for like 20, 30 pages. I think one was even like 40 pages. Uh, so far, I haven't seen too many like that. Um, but again, a lot of that's just to the fact that editors cut down these, these letters. I know some of the letters to Howard were, were incredibly lengthy. And we'll get to those details in a future series. So anyways, let's, let's do this. Um, so the first letter I want to talk about, the first writer, like per, these are all pretty much writers that he's talking to. Yeah, writers, or in one case, we've got an editor. These are all writers. Um, the first person, the first writer that Lovecraft is corresponding with is Wilford Blanche Talman. We've come across him before. He's a horror writer. And again, I think want, most of these are horror writers. Or, or weird fiction writers, people who publish in weird tales or, or you know, we're kind of in his literary circle. Um, anyways, but Wilfred Blanche Talman, we've seen before. He's come up a lot um, in, in Lovecraft's other letters. So this one is, the first one's just dated January 1932. Um, and it's, you know, this is a fun one because it, it gets a little bit into Lovecraft's bibliography, like the stuff he's reading, I mean. Uh, not his own, the bibliography of his works, I mean, the, what's in his mental bibliography. Uh, it's always good to make note of the books he's reading. I mean, I've talked a lot in this series about Murray's The Witch Cult in, in Western Europe. Um, in this case, he, he mentions a book called Dealing with the Dead, which is a book of occult lore, which is something that, you know, most of these are probably public domain, so it'd be worth checking out um, to see just a kind of a collection of kind of occult stuff that was available to readers in 1932, apparently. Um, um, the other thing he talks about here is uh, regionalism in America, but he comes at it in a strange way. He actually is talking about a variety of donuts, how donuts are look different or are made with different ingredients and recipes in different parts of America. It's kind of fun. Uh, it's really getting to, though, a bigger theme, which I, I think is something that Lovecraft is exploring in the later half of his career, and that is like regionalism in America. We certainly see this in the revisions, such as the Zelia Bishop revisions we just looked at. We also see it in some other works. Uh, not so much the stuff he published under his name, but particularly in the revisions, is just the, the, like the different regions of America and how they have their own different folklore and traditions and, and mythologies. You see it come up in several of his letters, especially with Robert E. Howard. Um, so it's something to keep in mind as we read, especially his revisions, that he is aware of how diverse the United States is. So that's a, 
that's a fun little letter to look at. Um, I'm not going to say much more because I don't have any opinion one way or another about uh, donuts. The, the second uh, Tallman letter is a few months later. It's March 5th, 1932. Um, and this one deals with uh, frustrations as a writer. And I, I guess if there's going to be a theme in this episode, it's going to be Lovecraft being quite frustrated with the market for his fiction. Uh, Weird Tales being the primary purchaser of his, tale, you know, of his stories he published with some others. Um, we know this. I talked about this when we looked at some of his stories. Like At the Mountains of Madness, Shadow Over Innsmouth were not published for, for years after they were written. right? Um, and that's true of several of his later stories. They were published in his lifetime, um, but they were published quite late. Um, and he didn't really, couldn't really find a home for them. They, like Weird Tales wasn't really as open to the new style he was writing in. Right? So he had to find other venues to publish his works. And we see he's getting a little frustrated. Some of his financial, certainly. Uh, this is around his time his aunt is getting sick and so he's got that to deal with um you know f you know he doesn't have a lot of money and he's trying to make a living as a writer it's one reason we get so many revisions i think late in his career is just because he is not selling stuff under his name uh, so he has income issues and in this letter it's it's very personal but he talks a little bit about rights issues and reprinting his stories and some of his frustration in that but um, also, he talks about perhaps giving up writing professional fiction. He thinks about actually retiring from that altogether. Uh, he does talk about, he's writing though, he talks about uh, having finished Shadow Over Innsmouth and Dreams on the Witch House, two fairly lengthy stories that he doesn't think that Weird Tales is going to be that open to publishing. Uh, as for other magazines, he mentions, for instance, Galaxy Magazine being started up, and he's not too optimistic of its success. Now, Galaxy Magazine would be around for a while, actually. I think like Philip Dick published some stuff in Galaxy Magazine. Um, overall, this is a pretty bitter sounding letter. This letter shows, I think, better than a lot of others, just how frustrated Lovecraft is with, uh, with the state of his career at this point in his life. So anyways, those are the only two we have to Talman in this series. In this set, I should say. But he's going to come back. We're going to see him in future episodes. Um, next, we have one letter written to Bernard Dwyer. Now, he's just another writer. Um, he's, I don't think we've seen too many letters to Dwyer previously in the, like in the third volume. But, uh, you know, he comes up a bit more in this volume. But he's just another horror writer. Um, so this one's dated also January 1932. Um, this one deals with, uh, this is kind of an important one, I think. This is, is, is a rather interesting letter. It deals with uh, Mackin. Mackin is someone he often praised. He often praised uh, like uh, uh, Mackin as one of the great horror writers who influenced him uh, in his in his career. And obviously, if you've read Mackin's work, you know uh, how significant that is in the development of the horror genre. Or if you even read his, you know, supernatural horror and literature, Mackin is a major player in that uh, essay in that analysis. Um, One thing he really likes about uh, Mackin is how steeped he is, how deeply steeped he is in Orthodox uh, mythologies, which is something Lovecraft's not really doing. I mean, Lovecraft's, of course, creating his own mythologies. He's not really relying heavily on existing archetypes and mythologies the way Mackin does, like Great God Pan, right? He's building off of uh, old mythologies, but putting a new modern spin on it. 
um, here you have, uh, you know, in Lovecraft, I mean, you have a whole new cosmology being created, a whole new mythology being created. But one thing he likes about Mackin is he does give some life to these older mythologies. Um, and he says sort of why this is and, he, and why he can't really do this. And that's because he really lacks this religious mythology and this religious mysticism that other writers may have. So it's kind of this is something that maybe other writers who dig mythology could could maybe embrace, but he's not really going to do it himself. Um, you know, and one thing he talks about that he can't really incorporate into his works quite as much as like the problem of sin, um, which is something that comes easy for a Christian writer to grapple with and to incorporate into his mythology. Like you see a ghost who's, I'm just making this up, this isn't in the letter, but you see a ghost and you kind of look at him and you're like, oh, he must be being punished or something, right? Like Marley's ghost or something. From, from a non-Christian standpoint, like a ghost being punished by being kept in this limbo on this world, you know, it doesn't fit Lovecraft's mythology anyways, which the universe is indifferent to us. So sin doesn't really work for him, but it certainly works for others. So I think he's pretty open-minded here about the value of different myth, uh, perspectives in it. Uh, he himself, though, needs this cosmic horror, which isn't a specifically religious horror. So this is kind of an important letter in he, seeing him talk about this religiously based horror fiction versus his own uh, cosmic horror. All right, next we got a handful of, of letters to August Derleth. Um, as we've seen before, I think these aren't always the most interesting letters um, they tend to be kind of uh, to the point I think what we've seen before there's some good ones but more or less they're not the best but um, the first one we want to look at is January 1932 as well January 2nd um, this is just a dream that Lovecraft had where he dreamed that Durleth was dead so it's that um, anyways I guess it shows us that Durleth was on uh, Lovecraft's mind for whatever reason um, the next one, uh, February 1932 to Durleth, is it's a very common type of letter. It, we see this a lot in the Durleth, uh, or the letters Lovecraft writes to Durleth, where it's like Lovecraft commenting on Durleth's work and kind of giving his advice and opinions. Um, and that's what this one is. Um, so he, he tends to be pretty generous with the people he, he comments on. He does say this, though. He, he this isn't a direct quote, but he says something like that, that author's goal should be art, right? And I don't know if he's suggesting that Durleth is not making that goal or not, but he is saying that this is something writers should do. Maybe he's responded to something Durleth wrote. Um, but he also comments on um, the language use uh, that he uses and the kind of like the words that his characters are using in the story. And Lovecraft was very, very attentive to language. It's uh, something we... Uh, especially know from his letters, but it, you know, if you look carefully at his stories too, you can tell he was very careful, even with, you know, he doesn't do it too often, but he, you know, he writes in dialect or he tries to do the backcountry dialect. Um, he's pretty attentive to language, even of time. Like, you know, he, you know, he's careful when he's writing how people in different centuries wrote. So he's pretty attentive to those kinds of things. And he thinks other writers should be as well. So he's sort of warning Durleth on some of that. Now this is immediately, uh, this comes up again in a few, like a week later or so, on February 12th, 1932. So this seems to be a direct follow-up. 
and what he's really specifically talking about in this letter is 18th century English diction. It actually gives some examples of this 18th century diction. He talks about a bit how he can't really fully master it and pull it off, but you know, ultimately if you're going, that's him being a little bit modest, I think, but if you're gonna write 18th century English, you know, in that setting, you should try to replicate that diction as much as you can. Um, now, I wonder how essential this is actually. I, I've been watching this uh, TV series on streaming called uh, Harlots, uh, which is set in the 18th century. Um, and I, you know, you get a sense of some attempts to, to make it sound like the 18th century, but not that much, right? Because if you go too far, you're gonna lose the audience, I guess. Or um, the, what's that show, Deadwood, where they have this really over, over the top aggressive language, which doesn't, I heard, doesn't quite fit how people in the 19th century West would have talked, but like the swear words they used in those days would be like comical if you heard them today spoken. So they changed the language to be less authentic, but uh, better at getting the actual spirit of what's trying to be conveyed. So I don't know if, um, you know, we need to be strict. I don't really think Lovecraft is necessarily saying that either. You know, because he even admits he doesn't really get Georgian language 100% right either. But this seems to be a follow-up of the previous letter directly. Um, now, the f next letter we have to, to Derleth uh, comes on March 4th, 1932. And this is right uh, a day before the uh, Wilford Blanche Talman letter was written. And it's very much on the same theme, the one about his frustrations over his career. Um, and he here, he's pretty honest with Derleth about the, how rejection is affecting him psychologically. He even admits that rejections have caused him to have nervous breakdowns in the past. So yeah, you can tell like in March 1932, maybe a moment in his life when he was really feeling down about his fortunes as a writer. And, and, and it's also, you know, when we come back a century later, read these works and say, wow, like Lovecraft really starts to shine in this early 30s, right? It's when we get the Whisper in Darkness and the Shadow over Innsmouth and the Mountains of Madness and these great stories that really see Lovecraft breaking free of his earlier influences to really have his own voice. But what it meant is it, it kind of made it more difficult for his works to get published and for him to get an audience. And, and that, of course, could be really hard on a writer, right? So we benefit, but, but he, he sort of had to suffer for that to a certain degree. So anyways, that's the four letters we have to August uh, Derleth. Um, next, we have two letters to Elizabeth Toldridge. Um, Toldridge was a poet uh, that he corresponded to for much of his, his, his life. We, we've seen his, him writing with her since the beginning of this, uh, since we first started looking at the letters, basically. Uh, maybe not in the teens, but by the 20s, he was writing her uh, quite a lot, you know, sharing poems, talking about poetry, talking about literature, talking about modernism, talking about a lot of uh, interesting issues. And certainly these two letters are both quite, quite fascinating. Uh, the first of these is January 16th, 1932. Um, and um, he actually starts out this, this section we have here with a uh, a shout out to Marx in a way, uh, and he said, "Kind of all cultures decline for certain reasons." And and this is of course something. What he why why he kind of cites Marx here is because Marx has this idea that capitalism is bound to f die out due to its own internal contradictions. 
he sort of says, well, he's sort of got this right that all civilizations do eventually collapse under their own weight. Um, so that's, in a way, he's kind of maybe throwing some shade on Mark, Mark saying it's not very profound. It's a pretty obvious point for, for Lovecraft. But it is acknowledging, you know, that they're, they're, this civilization is worthy of criticism for being, you know, decadent, right? All cultures have this decadence. He calls it here collective senility, uh, which is kind of just essentially decadence. Uh, now, of course, not long before this, he wrote The Mound, which is about a culture in this essentially collective senility. Um, and he thinks more dynamic cultures may even go more quickly. They might, you know, flame for a short period of time with a lot of energy and then quickly decline sometime after that. He doesn't think necessarily that the West is going to fall apart in his lifetime or even in the century, but he does think it's going to, he's going to be a long, steady, brutal decline. Um, now, what are the causes of this? Well, if you've been with this podcast, you know what some of the reasons are. Uh, one being race mixing. Uh, he gives the Hellenist example one, once again. This is his go-to uh, moment in time. If he ever wants to say, like, oh, a culture's doomed, he'll point to the Hellenistic culture and particularly the problem of, of kind of cultural mixing. Maybe not race mixing so much, although that might be a part of it in his mind, but really culture mixing, right, where the Greeks spread out and interacted with the Persians and the Egyptian and others, and this allowed the spread of that culture, really the high point of Greek civilization in a way, but also, you know, it left it very weak and vulnerable to being conquered by the Romans and... Uh, being assimilated by others and not it's kind of lost its its hold its center right as it spread out and he certainly thinks that's where the west is going maybe not tomorrow but eventually um, and once again he makes this and we've seen again this before in previous letters where he says he definitely does think there's a hierarchy of civilizations but he'll often say i'm not saying that civilizations are better than another Although he sort of is, he's saying it wouldn't matter if all civilizations were equal. You know, they just aren't really compatible with each other. So mixing them together, you're going to lose some kind of root. Like, he's kind of against multiculturalism, right? Um, at the same time, he says something about cultures needing to rearrange and rebalance themselves. Could that be done in a way that with, with a new mixture of cultures? Uh, you know, we see in his discussions with Howard, some of the Howard letters, where Howard's saying, well, look, history is always mixing cultures, right? So the, you look at Anglo-Saxon culture and you say, well, this is kind of a steady, permanent thing that goes, it has its roots maybe in the Roman era. And, but it's not true. You're always having migrations and mixing. And so it's just apparently solid. In fact, it's all liquid. Um, he might be surrendering a little bit to this when he says cultures will sometimes rearrange and rebalance. Um, but I like this. Uh, I like this kind of meditation he gives on this. It's another good reminder of his overall historical thesis. And it's going to really be important when we look at the Howard letters. Um, he does also say, though, that uh, in this letter, uh, he deals with some cosmic issues. Uh, it's kind of a different topic, but he's dealing with some cosmic issues, saying specifically that the you know universes will as they're you know they're expanding so universes don't have a beginning or an end anymore a clear beginning or an end that or they don't go on forever it's it's like changing how we look at the cosmos overall uh, new science pointing to an expanding universe 
So that's a really fascinating letter. I kind of like that. But he, he writes back to Elizabeth Tolbridge in February 26, 1932, dealing with very, very different questions. I don't know. It's, again, it's such a shame we don't have... Even the editors didn't give us some kind of notes on what Tolbridge wrote to Lovecraft to know what he's replying to. It would be a nice addition, but that might be asking too much. So uh, it's still a wonderful scholarly achievement. As much as I criticize it, it's just it's it's because I want more, right? I want more details, I want more precision, and you know, as a good scholar, I should probably dig that up, right? Go um, figure it out for myself. But editors can't do all the work for you, obviously. Um, but I, I still wish I want to know what spurred on this new topic. Um, so. He talks a little bit about uh, the economic prospects for art, you know, um, that a, a rich culture, a vibrant culture, a capitalist culture might be very good for art. And there's a lot of money to spend on just excess uh, wealth, but it might, um, you know, be more bankrupt or like money, wealth kind of is creates a bankruptcy for individualism, right? So we might have a lot of art, but that art is not going to be true art that really ex expresses individuality anymore. You're just going to get like what the masses want or what the state wants or something like this. Um, and then he shifts to talking about the situation in the Pacific. And this is great stuff. I love, I'm really interested when he's talking about the Pacific because there is this growing great power conflict Japan and the United States, this upcoming war for the Pacific. We know it comes within, you know, 15 years of this letter being written, right? Less than that, right? Um, you know, eight years, eight, nine years. Uh, so we know it's coming, a great conflict over who will dominate the Pacific, the, the, the seemingly inevitable conflicts between rising powers and established powers in regions. Uh, we, of course, saw it in Europe in the First World War. Um, and it's, you know, it, ha it seems to be almost a, a law of history, right? Isn't this the Thucydides trap? This is what some people have been writing about China and the U.S. And that's really what I want to get to here is we're in a time when there's more and more discourse about the inevitable conflict between a rising power and established power in the Pacific, right? It's just not Japan anymore. Now it's China. And you may say, oh, this is just more yellow peril stuff. Um, but the fact of the matter is China is a rising power and rising powers tend to have conflicts with existing powers, right? It, it's, you know, there's plenty of examples of this happening. Um, so there is, you know, Lovecraft does seem to think war is inevitable and wars between cultures is inevitable and they're going to be fought. And it's just part of part of life. It's something that people have to deal with. But at the same time, he says like wars kind of are wars of profit and, and you know, they're, they're not necessarily the best for humanity. They're just sort of inevitable. So there's a little bit of ennui about uh, the, the prospects of war. But at the same time, he's not a pacifist. He doesn't think civilizations to stand by and be overrun by, by quote-unquote barbarians. Um, he does think Japan cannot be allowed to gain control of China because he thinks uh, and China hasn't, or Japan hasn't fully invaded China by this point in history. They had bomb Shanghai. They have been expanding their imperialist agenda there. We have the Manchurian crisis. That's later in the year of 1932. Um, so he's, he's predicting that there's going to be a conflict between China and Japan that might lead to Japan conquering China and then having dominance over the Pacific. And he thinks this really can't be allowed by the U.S. Um, 
Then this allows him to kind of flip back to his themes about race and civilization, saying this is really more important than class at the end of the day. And he returns to the Hellenistic examples, which he keeps coming back to again. And he says, like here, really the what divided civilization was civilized, divided cultures was the civilizations they're from, not class divisions. And and he's again kind of throwing shade on the leftist Marxian perspectives that say really workers of the world unite, it's class that really matters. You know, Lovecraft doesn't obviously agree with that. He thinks there's deep cultural differences. At the same time, though, he, he does fear that maybe there may be a homogenization of culture, as with the rise of machine culture. Uh, he talked about that in other letters. Um, so uh, he says, what to do about this? What to do about this rising power? Well, uh, he says we need to have solidarity with Great Britain. Uh, Great Britain should be an ally. This is back to that old Anglo-American loyalism we saw in his writings since World War One. It's some of the first things I talked about in this entire series. Um, he does make the joke that I think it's a joke. I don't think he's serious. He says maybe I need to move to Jamaica because in Jamaica I can die under you know the flag of Great Britain at the time. Um, so he kind of uh, he flips back. He comes back to the issue of geopolitics, but he has a little side conversation where he talks about 18th century architecture in New England. And makes a very interesting point, you know, if you study art history, which I just recently taught an art history course, if you study art history, you know, skyscrapers are this nine, late 19th, early 20th century American innovation in architecture, right? You got Sullivan maybe being one of the most important figures in the creation. Uh, was it Henry Louis Sullivan uh, in the invention of the skyscraper? And he kind of says skyscrapers aren't new. You've had these before. I, I don't know what he's talking about here. I can't think. He must be really stretching the definition of skyscraper to say there were historical antecedents in, in earlier times. Um, but if culture is going to survive, he says, it must be non-material. Uh, he says the, the best example of this is China. China is a culture that's been conquered and it's been able to maintain its identity, maintain its cultural independence. Um, and it's because it's fundamentally a non-material culture. And then one final thing we get in this letter is about the joke of the League of Nations. At least he's saying it's a joke. And he says, what we really need instead is some kind of Teddy Roosevelt style of speak strongly but carry, or speak quietly but carry a strong stick, right? He says, well, then, therefore, we need a strong army and a strong navy. Um, so, and he returns to a thing he said in the previous letter about cosmic matters, about how there's no beginning and end to the universe anymore. The religious idea that there's a beginning and end doesn't fit with modern science, and this is going to change our mythologies and change our perspectives. So these are a couple of jam-packed letters. So I think they're the most interesting in this whole section, to be honest. But uh, certainly very, very worthy of, of studying. So next we have a Robert E. Howard letter dated January 16th, 1932. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to save the details of this for when I talk about all of the letters for Robert E. Howard in a future series. So um, not, I'm not going to say too much about this, but it does deal with uh, dreams and freedom um, or dreams as a source of freedom. Uh, his idea that we should have a kind of a revolution against the commonplace, the weird fiction market. And maybe uh, there's a little bit of a personal, um, there's a part of this connected to his personal, in, uh, you know, attitude. And this is going to come up later, I think, in a Morton letter. Yeah, this is that he, you know, that 
Lovecraft doesn't like sports. It's it's kind of a point of conversation between the two uh, at several as several times. So, you know, not too much to say about this. Or oh, there's a lot to say about this letter. I mean, but I'm going to come later and and do this. So you'll just have to wait for my full um, analysis. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do the Howard letters. You know, some of those letters are worthy of their own episode. You know, and you know, it'll probably be a slower process, um, depending on how I feel about it. But all right, that's all I'm going to say about that letter. Just. Uh, just a preview of what uh, may come later. Okay, uh, next. Five letters to Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, these guys were good friends. They never met. Uh, of course, Clark Ashton Smith is another writer, an artist. Uh, very much they influenced each other. Very, very good friends. It's a pity they never got to meet. Um, and their letters are always a, like, a, lot, of good, a lot of fun. Um, they bounce ideas off each other. Uh, they... Uh, they, that's a lot of what they do, um, anyways. Um, for instance, uh, in a January 28th letter, uh, he says, he basically praises uh, one of Wandry's novels. It says you should read that. But I think the more interesting thing, because this feeds into another letter he's going to write, is he says that, you know, he says this would be a great example of underground horror, right? And I think this began a conversation between the two where they began to talk about, you know, what are the, possibilities for horror underground but um not too much to say about it but you know i think these letters are always fun because they're such good friends there's a bit of a bromance between the two of them um then we have one the very next day this happens sometimes with lovecraft's letters where he writes a letter sends it off it seems and then maybe forgets adds some things or maybe has to do with when letters he's responding to maybe a couple letters to Clark Ashton Smith, and he sends it out in two different letters, or maybe it's two different dates in one envelope. I'm not sure how it was all done, but uh, it's, it's dated the very next day. Um, and he says here, Macon's a better writer than he is. He talks about Blackwood. So he's talking about some of the influences. I can't believe Smith didn't already know this, because I'm pretty sure he said this before in some of the letters to, to Smith. Um, but he talks mostly about the writing of The Shadow Over Innsmouth. And suggest that he's writing longer these days, right? This is, of course, the problem with the weird fiction market. So this is feeding back to this problem he's having of finding a market for his work, uh, this discomfort he has about his career and what he's used to doing publishing in weird tales. It's not as likely with the kind of stuff he's been publishing. And he's worried that he's going to lose an audience, whether he even wants to have an audience or he just wants to write for himself. Ideally, that's what he thinks writers should do, but you know, he's got to put food on the table, right? Um, so he says, maybe I need a break from fiction. Um, you know, he writes some great stories, but maybe his pace does slow down. I think I, if you look at the, the stories he writes year to year, they do seem to slow down in the last five, six years of his life. I think from 1932 to 37, he only publishes five stories under his name. Um, the other things he boy, he only writes five stories under that could later get published under his name. Others are published, but these are old stories he wrote in 1931 or 32, like at the Mountains of Madness. So maybe he did take a break from fiction, but he does still do a lot of revisions. So he's not taking a break in that way. Uh, he talks about the importance of dreams in his own fiction writing, which is something, of course, we already know. And he actually talks about why he can't be Robert E. Howard. It's, it's great. You can tell the influence. Robert E. Howard's writings have already had on Lovecraft, even though I think their correspondence had only been going on for a couple of years at this point. 
So next we have a letter dated February 18th, 1932, um, where he says he wants to return to, this is kind of a follow-up on his ennui about writing. He wants to f uh, return to his pre-1929 situation where he wrote only for himself. Um, you know, that's before he had to worry about the markets and worrying about getting published. And, if you, you know, he did write some great stories in that period. Although at the same time, he was heavily influenced by some of these other writers like Poe at the time. So it's from our more, I guess, selfish uh, point of view as people want to, you know, it would have been, wouldn't have been great if Lovecraft had written more. Uh, you know, he needs to struggle with, with his survival, right? Um, and he's kind of come, come to, coming to terms with this. He says he cannot handle, in this letter, he says he can't really handle editorial restrictions and popular preferences. He seems really, these are the two restraints that every writer has to deal with to a certain degree, but he really can't stomach it anymore. So it's, it's kind of a pity uh, that, and it's true of many writers, of course, that what their tastes are, where they are in their head is not necessarily where their, their audience is or the people who are going to pay them to write want them to be. Um, on February 26th, of a fourth letter to Clark Ashton Smith in this set, we get a return to the underground horror idea uh, that was presented in an earlier letter. Uh, in this case, he talks about the the buried alive story. Um, and it's a very short little note, essentially. It's part of a longer letter. But he just says, embalmings ruin the burying alive story. I, I think we know this. Uh, most people are embalmed or processed, cut up. They get autopsy. It's not just embalming. It's like autopsies, you know, I think are more common than they used to be. You know, as if you have any kind of death where it's not obviously that your heart gave out or whatever, they'll, they'll investigate that, and that means an autopsy. And that, you know, you're not going to be buried alive if you underwent an autopsy first. Um, so he says we need, as a writer, find a way to get around this, right? So... You know, I guess one way, I guess, did Kill Bill have the buried alive scene? But that's because they were trying to murder someone by burying, burying her underground. So maybe it's still possible, but you can't just have someone, like how it happened in the 19th century, right? I don't know if you heard these stories. They used to actually include like bells or, you know, different things in the coffin just in case people were in a coma and they were buried alive and they woke up later. Um, I don't know how often that happened, but it must have happened more in the past than, than, than now because of how we... Just because of science, right? And the technology of how bodies are processed. And then we get a final one uh, to Clark Kirsten Smith in this set, uh, dated March 2nd, 1932. And here he says he has an idea for a Hyperborean story. Um, and then this is what's interesting is he, the idea for the story that he gives involves swapping brains. And it's very similar to Shadow Out of Time. So it's like, let's travel to the hyperborean. Let's have a, a, an advanced civilization that can swap brains with people in the past and experience life in the hyperborean age. And this is exactly what happens with the shadow over time, right? The Yithians can do this. So um, Lovecraft's idea here, I think, does become a story. It becomes a shadow out of time. It just it's not quite the same. There might even be references though, to the hyperborean age in the shadow out of time. Um, I don't quite remember. There's a lot of different places that the Ithians were told the Ithians go and different people who are brought to the library by the Ithians with the brain swap. Maybe some of those, maybe the seed of this story actually is in the shadow at a time, but it's too close to be a coincidence. It's, it's clearly him playing with the idea that will later become the shadow at a time. 
I think, I think he writes that about two years after this letter was was written. All right, so next we have a couple of personal letters uh, or letters dealing with personal topics uh, to James F. Morton. This is another uh, long-standing friend of, of H.P. Lovecraft's, um, someone he often kind of parries with on, on political issues. Um, but these, these letters are mostly personal. Uh, the first uh, dated February 3rd, uh, which I think actually predates the... No, it's after the Robert E. Howard letter by a couple of weeks, so it might be building off of those, those ideas um, that he discussed with Robert E. Howard. But he basically says he has an indifference to sports and games, both. Um, you know, it's kind of, he, he's kind of ambivalent about sports because on some level he thinks there, there's kind of this like macho-ness with sports that maybe not fits him personally, but seems to fit his perception of kind of Anglo-Saxon culture uh, and Teutonic culture. And he actually talks in this letter about how sports have sort of a racial memory and that certain sports might be attracted to certain people really because of their racial memory, right? If you like, why do some cultures like soccer and others like boxing or something? It's like, you know, he thinks maybe it has something to do with racial memory, kind of going back to old traditions and old ways of life from the deep, deeply rooted in the past. So that's kind of a, uh, an interesting idea in connection to his overall racial uh, ideas about race. But generally, you know, he says, with sports and games, there's no return for the pain. Like, the suffering you have, the, the anxiety you have playing sports, it doesn't have a payoff that's worth it, that's worth the suffering. No rewarding games. Like, you can, you can win a game, but it doesn't have any, like, tangible reward. I don't agree with that at all, actually. I think games can, can be very personally rewarding and uh, give one a lot of pleasure. A pleasure is a reward, right, for, for effort. Um, but he does hypothesize why some people might like puzzles uh, for various reasons. But again, he says he doesn't really like it. Instead, for pleasure, he likes to to walk. I don't. I don't know why. I think he's not saying games and sports are bad. He's just saying it's not my my cup of tea. Um, but anyways, it's that letter exists. Um, finally, we have uh, one. What's the date? March. Yeah, March 7, 1932, which is about a visit to Warren, Rhode Island. So he's just kind of talking about a, another trip he took. So they're both very personal. But I, I'm very interested in this letter where he talks about sports. Anyways, that's enough of those. Um, so now we just have three more letters, all to different people. So we'll just do them in the order that they appeared. Um, First is to J. Vernon Shea. This is a weird fiction writer, much younger than Lovecraft. He started writing him, I think, in 1931. He showed up at the end of the third volume of the Selected Letters. So they had just begun their correspondence. And what does he say here? Yeah, so it's a little bit about modernist fiction and a little bit about war with Japan. Two totally unrelated topics, it seems. Um, but he talks about other, not just actually, um, well, he talks about modernist writers. He talks about James Joyce, and as you already know from his other letters, he has no interest in James Joyce. He doesn't want to read him, doesn't have much interest in him. He even talks about Finnegan's Wake, which was being kind of, at the time it was being written, and I think there were like leaks of different aspects of it, and he just says, this is bizarre, I don't want to read it. But he does have praise for Faulkner in The Rose for Emily, which honestly I've never read. I haven't gotten around to Faulkner yet. 
He has praise for Cather, which I think is well-deserved. Cather is amazing. I did a whole series on William Cather, and you should check it out. Uh, he mentions a few other contemporary authors. So that's fun stuff, uh, but nothing really too new um, if you've been following this series. But uh, what is kind of interesting is he talks about the possibilities for war, war with Japan, and he says we need to, you know, he basically thinks war might be necessary if, if for the race, actually. It's almost like a possible racial war that needs to be fought at some point in the future. Um, and I don't know what Vernon Shea said that really egg him on about this, but he really lays it in quite viciously, lays into the philosophy of pacifism, saying pacifism is just nonsense. No agreement collapsed on paper between great powers. You know, you, whatever you write on paper isn't going to matter. What's going to matter is power on the ground eventually. And he says Japan may moderate in the future, but there's no reason to, you know, hold your breath and hoping that that will happen. So some kind of important stuff there about, about that. Um, then we have a, a letter dated February 18th to Farnsworth Wright. Wright, of course, is the editor of Weird Tales. Um, and Lovecraft is often writing to him about business things. This letter uh, really shows his frustration for the, you know, the publishing market, right? That he, why isn't he writing for Weird Tales? I think Farnsworth Wright must have said something like this. Why aren't you writing, sending more stuff for Weird Tales? And he's kind of saying he really can't. Like what he's writing now is not going to work in that market. He does say, mention he finished Shadow uh, Over Innsmouth. Um, I'm wondering if I should shadow over time before. I mean, I did talk about shadow over time, but the story he published, he wrote about this time is shadow over Innsmouth. If I made that mistake before, I'm sorry. But uh, he finished shadow over, because in my notes I just write shadow, and that's, I guess, ambiguous. But it means shadow over Innsmouth. He just finished that. He says he'll try to send some shorter work soon. I guess Dreams of the Witch House is sent to Weird Tales not long after this. You got Thing on the Doorstep, but I think that's published a little bit later. So he doesn't end up sending that much more to Weird Tales uh, under his name. It's often revisions that get sent. But, you know, he just isn't capable of writing those really short, really short, effective stories that worked so well earlier in his career. Um, and you see some tension here and some, some of his frustration that we saw expressed in some of his other letters. Um, and this will come up we see this coming alive in his May, March 4th and March 5th letters to Durlath and Tolman, as we already talked about. Um, then we have finally a, a letter to Carl Jacobi. Jacobi is another weird fiction writer. Uh, and this also is on the same topic of the publishing and the weird fiction magazines. Uh, his own trouble with writing lately, his facing rejections from weird tales and other uh, magazines. Um, he talks about how Durlath was praising Jacobi's work, so there's a little bit of the friendly patting each other on the back stuff. Uh, mentions Robert E. Howard and his affection for Robert E. Howard's stories. He seems to he sends him a copy of In the Vault, uh, which is and he kind of says, "Hope you like it." So it seems to be an opening correspondence. I don't remember another story, another letter to Carl Jacobi, but there are others in the future. So this this seems to be a letter that's sort of opening up. Uh, discourse of sorts so um that does it that's uh the first 20 letters in the fourth volume of the selected letters i think the most interesting things are this growing awareness of of this potential of a conflict between japan and the united states and you know 
what do great powers do is they fight wars. And this feeds into Lovecraft's vision of, of history. But maybe underlying all this is a deep or growing kind of anxiety and uh, internal turmoil over the fact that his works just, he can't find really a place that can swallow what he's writing. And, and us writing, reading now, love that part of his career, but at the time it was a, you know, we praise that change. I praise that shift in his style. But at the time it meant repositioning himself professionally. And he's gonna eventually publish in like uh, Astounding and, and other, you know, magazines like that, a, a few stories anyways. But he's never going to have a, a, his foot in there the way he did in Weird Tales. And I wonder, had he lived longer, had he lived into like the 40s, you know, where would he have continued? Would, he, would Weird Tales have found a way to publish his work at the same pace they did before? You know, eventually they sort of do, right? They reprint a lot of his stuff. So it's kind of ironic in a way because Weird Tales eventually will reprint a lot of this stuff, um, you know, when they don't have, I guess, other stuff to print as Lovecraft's name became more popular, they start to start to miss him. And some of the stories that they print are things that, you know, weren't initially accepted by Farnsworth Wright at this time. But um, anyways, I just think it's important to notice that that's what it, part of what he's going through in these letters. So a lot of anxiety about his, his career. So um, I guess that's it. So um, in the next episode, we'll look at uh, another 20 letters covering, I think it's, like maybe like March to April or something of 1932. So it's another couple months of, of letters. So um, that's going to be it for now. So uh, I hope you're glad to be back looking at letters. If you're not, it won't be long. Within a, uh, a couple months, I'll be back to looking at the final stories by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, but but for now, I want to I want to explore these letters in some detail and get a sense of, of where his head is uh, before we jump into those letters, those sto final stories. So um, thanks, as always, for listening. I'll, I'll see you next time. If you have your own thoughts about this, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now we're strangers. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away as much as to say You've never known me, stranger, after sharing all your